0: This episode contains detailed descriptions of graves and cemeteries and might not be suitable for everyone. At the top of a hill in the town of Falmouth Cornwall, there is a cemetery. On one side, it overlooks the Swampool Lagoon, on the other, the slope down to Gilliam Bay's beach. The cemetery used to be on the outskirts of the small port town, Falmouth. Historic and unique, the place where Charles Darwin arrived on board the Beagle in October 1836, and the first town in England to hear the news of Lord Nelson's victory at Trafalgar. The Falmouth Cemetery, is one of 108 cemeteries listed by Historic England on its Register of Parks and Gardens of Special Historic Interest. It is the only one in Cornwall with its status. It is also what is known as a High Victorian Garden Cemetery because its layout, structures, and planting survive intact to this day. And it is one of the quietest parts of this town, ancient trees and wildflowers decorated. A wall surrounds its perimeter Inside, Celtic and wooden crosses, lichen-covered gravestones, World War graves. This is a special place, embraced by the people who live here. We want to explore its history and the stories of those buried here. We want to be inspired by them and respond with our own stories, find out what we discovered in this exchange between historic fact, speculation, and storytelling. What do we leave behind? Whose stories are remembered? What do we know of those who are dead? How can we learn from them? And what do its cemeteries tell us about a place? Join us in this, our pilot season, as we explore the history of Falmouth Cemetery, focusing each episode on one grave, learning about those who once lived, and responding to their lives with our own writing. In this episode, we look at the grave of Sir John Newton-Elaine, 3rd Baronet of Four Hills, and we begin to explore the history of Falma Cemetery. I am Xerezada Garcia-Rangel, and this is On the Hill. At the top of the cemetery, in a path that runs parallel to Penance Road, there is a small cluster of Alain family graves. Two proud stone crosses, one in front of the other, both lifted off the ground by stone steps. At times covered in brambles, you can still read the information in them more than a century later, in loving memory of Augusta Isabella wife of sir john gay newton alain behind her her son born 1852 died 1908 reynold henry newton alain eldest and last surviving son of sir john gay newton alain and him sir john alain born in 1820 died in 1912 almost a century of the third baronet of four hills a sugar plantation in Barbados historically maintained by West African slaves. We wonder, where are their graves? The Alanes were amongst the original British settlers of Barbados in 1625. The first slaves brought over as early as 1627. The small native population of approximately 50 people was quickly displaced. By the middle of the 17th century, a system of sugar plantations had arisen, and wealthy white plantation owners called planters became the political elite, forming a plantocracy. The so-called triangle trade maintained their power. Guns shipped from Western Europe to Africa were exchanged for slaves, who were then shipped to the Americas and exchanged for sugar, which was then shipped back to Western Europe. Guns, slaves, sugar. Sugar, guns, slaves... In 1757, wealthy planter John Gator Lane was elected to the Parliament of Barbados and would go on to keep his seat for 40 years. He was Speaker of the House, a house which would create him the Baronet of Four Hills. Despite his position and being a slave owner himself, he publicly aired views that were unpopular among the planter class, stating in the House of Assembly that slavery was an unhappy sight which leaves an immense debt upon us to clear the obligation of human nature. In 1770, Sir John Gay Alleyne, first baronet of Four Hills, funded the creation of the seminary, a school for poor children, both white and children of color. This was eventually renamed the Alleyne School, and it exists today as the first government co-educational secondary school in Barbados. Sir John Gay first baronet of Four Hills, generated much of his wealth as manager of Mount Gilboa Plantation and Distillery. The distillery was producing and trading in rum precisely at the time when rum smuggling was at its height in Falmouth and along the southern coast of Cornwall. He did so well for the company that it was renamed in his honor as Mount Gay Distilleries after his death. The company is still in existence as the makers of the world's oldest known rum brand. At the time, people from Falmouth also participated in the slave trade, a local man called Thomas Corker, became a writer and agent of the Royal African Company based in Sierra Leone. His brother, an attorney in Falmouth, helped him build an empire, defrauding the Royal African Company and illegally trading in slaves. In 1801, upon the death of Sir John Gay Alain, the title and plantations passed to his son, Reynold Abel Allain, 1789, 1870. Soon after, the international slave trade was abolished in 1807, although little immediately changed for the slaves in Barbados, culminating in a revolt in 1816, led by one of Barbados' national heroes, Pusa of Bailey's plantation. The emancipation statue was erected in his memory. During the three-day revolt, 800 slaves died and a further 100 were executed the revolt was pivotal in bringing about political reform, rights for slaves, and the ultimate abolition of slavery in all British overseas territories in
1: 1834. Body, human heart, to the of
0: we have more information to share about Sir John Elaine. But before we do, let's learn about Falmouth in the middle of the 19th century. (coughs) Decades before any of the Allen family were buried in Falmouth Cemetery, this Cornish town was struggling with a continuous problem. Since 1832, there were constant outbreaks of cholera and dysentery.
2: Cholera is true to no condition but filth. It breaks out in a dirty swamp at the level of the sea, and it rages at elevations hundreds of feet above this level, if the conditions exist, namely populations living amidst their own filth. A town may be at the sea margin, as Falmouth, Dover and Plymouth, or inland, at an elevation of 500 feet, as Bilston and Wolverhampton in all of which places there has been cholera.
0: These kind of outbreaks were common problems at the time. Concern had been rising amongst the scientific community in the UK. But then, these problems were not understood to be a matter of government involvement. Social reformers at Edwin Chad would help change that by pioneering the use of scientific surveys to identify complex social problems. His self-published report on the sanitary condition of the labouring population of Great Britain would lead the way to the understanding that this was a matter for public concern. In 1848, after another cholera epidemic, Parliament passed the Public Health Act, which was the first instance of the British government taking responsibility for the health of its citizens. Falmouth, too, was concerned. Following the latest outbreaks, the Town Council asked the General Board of Health to hold a public inquiry on the sanitary conditions of the inhabitants of the borough of Falmouth. Led by Sir Robert Rawlinson, the inquiry started at 10 a.m. on the 7th of December, 1853, and would go on to collate a range of evidence about the living conditions, the layout of the town, the state of the current cemeteries, and a few recommendations about the possible developments that could be carried out to improve the lives of those who called Falmouth home.
2: During the past seven years, there have been upwards of 7,000 cases of sickness produced by zymotic diseases. The end to be attained by sanitary works or regulations is to secure pure air. An overcrowded drawing room in a palace may, for the time, become as unwholesome as an overcrowded room tenement. Robert Rawlison, Esquire, Superintendent-Inspector, 1854.
0: One of the findings of this inquiry was that Falmouth Town had a higher mortality rate than average, and that disease continued to be found on the same areas. The medical community was concerned about water supply and sewage, but another of their concerns is our focus here. William Tolmetric solicitor and church warden at the time, gave evidence on the state of the existing cemeteries. This is how he described the old churchyard.
2: The soil of the churchyard is very full of human remains. After a heavy shower, small bones and pieces of bone may be seen on the surface near newly made graves, or on spots where there is an absence of grass. The soil is light kyllus and marl, and the sexton uses an instrument called a spear, being a long iron bar shaped with a conical steel point T to probe the ground prior to digging a grave, in order to ascertain whether there be any coffins beneath the ground about to be broken, and if so the state of preservation therein. If the ground be free from human remains, the point of the spear, when withdrawn from the ground, appears bright and dry. Should a sound coffin obstruct the spear, that fact is discerned from the sound produced by striking the instrument against the obstruction. And should the spear pass through the lid of a coffin and come in contact with human remains, the point of the instrument when withdrawn is discoloured by a moist black substance which adheres to it. And notwithstanding the use of the spear, graves having been dug to a depth of two feet or more have frequently to be filled in. The space between coffins then being found insufficient to admit another coffin, another grave is consequently dug in a spot where more room can be obtained. With a view partially to remedy this, and to prevent the effluvia which is said to arise from the churchyard, some hundreds of loads of earth have from time to time been wheeled into and spread over the churchyard. The depth of the graves varies, rarely exceeding four feet and often being less than three feet from the grass. The graves have an apparent depth, which they do not actually possess. Coffins are invariably exposed whenever a grave is made. I have seen, I should think, the sides or ends of as many as four or five coffins exposed in one grave. There is no map of the churchyard, nor any register kept of the situation of the graves. The state of the churchyard is such as to render the decent internment of the dead in common graves altogether impossible, and, I should say, must be very injurious, if not absolutely dangerous, to the health of the persons residing in the immediate neighbourhood of it.
0: The conditions were making the town sick. The old churchyard, in use since the 1600s, was too full. Falmouth had to find a new, more permanent solution, a suitable place to bury the dead away from the town, where the miasma, thought then to cause cholera, could be kept away.
2: There is a general cemetery at Hangman Hill, about a mile from the borough, opened about a year and nine months since, and provided for the interment of the bodies of all having right of sepulture in the present churchyard. This cemetery is unconsecrated in order that members of other denominations may bury their dead according to their own religious observances. William Tolmy Tressida, Solicitor and Churchwarden, 1854
0: Across this season, we will study how the town of Falmouth went about resolving these issues. Stay with us as in each episode we discover a new story We learn more about the final cemetery we relate the historical account of some of those buried there and we share a creative response from one of our writers. Now let's go back to learn more about Sir John Elaine, third Baronet of Four Hills. John Gay Newton-Alain, son of Sir Reynold Abel Alain, second baronet of Fort Hills, was born in Barbados in 1820. Educated in England and Germany, and after a brief period working in the sugar industry in Barbados from 1851 to 1852, he married Augusta Isabella, the last surviving daughter of Sir Henry Fitzherbert of Tissington Hall in Derbyshire, and became the first manager of the Butterly Company in the same English county. John Gay newton Lane went on to work as manager and chief engineer for 28 years. He invented methods of processing and shaping iron and steel, assessing the quality of these metals and using them in construction projects, including the roof of St. Pancras Station and the two-track railway bridge over the Maas River in the Netherlands. His mechanical design and construction work served to reduce the reliance upon manual labor. In 1870, on the year where he was elected vice president of the Council of the Iron and Steel Institute, his father died and he became the third baronet of Four Hills. He began to see the disposal and sale of his family's Barbadian properties, including Allendale Hall, where he had been born, and various plantations. During this time, with his son Raymond Henry Newton-O'Lean, he maintained a residence in Falmouth, which he used periodically until his death, by which time all Barbadian properties had been sold. Sir John Gay Newton-O'Lean lived his life as a man of science. He became a skilled astronomer, established a well-fitted observatory at Belper in Derbyshire, and keenly investigated sunspots and their relation to meteorological conditions. In 1903, Sir John Elaine shared an evening at the Royal Cornwall Polytechnic Society, known now as the Poly. There he gave a talk to the gathering where he discussed a variety of topics, including the progress of engineering across the last few decades, and sunspots and weather. There he was received quite warmly. These are the words of the chairman the evening he gave his lecture.
2: Now I have the pleasure of introducing you to Sir John Alain. He is already known to many of you and, fortunately for us, he is a temporary resident at Falmouth. He is also a warden of Dulwich College and one of the industrial chiefs of the Midland Counties. Another claim to our respect and admiration, which appeals to some of us perhaps more nearly thank his scientific attainments, is that a little time ago he had the good fortune with Lady Elaine, to celebrate his golden wedding and to be surrounded by thirty-five children and grandchildren. I call upon him to give his address. Ladies and gentlemen... With great diffidence I accept the very flattering invitation of your committee to take the chair on this occasion, and after reading the proceedings of your society, it was irresistibly borne in upon me that I had undertaken a far greater responsibility than I was aware of. When I find myself in the chair of Sir William Preece or of other distinguished presidents who have preceded him, I realize that there is laid upon me a very important duty. I sincerely hope I shall discharge it to your satisfaction.
0: He supported the society's maintenance and the use of the famous Observatory Tower, which still stands today, although it is now used as a guest house. Until his dying day, he looked to understand the world around him and the place of our world in the wider universe. A man of science, a member of the nobility, a slave owner. How do we reconcile the history of a former empire? Let's hear from Adam Dalton as he shares his creative response to the life of Sir John Gay Newton Alain.
3: From the Journal of Sir John Gay Newton Alain, Third Baronet of Four Hills, dated 15th of February, 1870. It grieves me to record here that my father, Sir Reynold Abel Elaine, second baronet of Four Hills, Barbados, yesterday passed away quietly. He lived to the venerable age of eighty, which gave him much time to enjoy life, the consolation of a large family, and the pleasures of this earth. My father died here in his comfortable home at Barton-under-Needwood, Staffordshire, England. He died, of course, far away from his place of birth, Allendale Hall, St Peter's, Barbados. I was also born there, and must wonder if I will ever see the place again myself. I am not sure I can bear to, in truth. Hot though Barbados is, I shudder now to think of it. Much occurred there that still grieves me, and should grieve all men of conscience and Christian fellowship. It is painful to think upon, but not to think upon it would be to do a disservice to the memory of all those who suffered. I refer, inevitably, to the slave uprising of Sunday the 14th of April, 1816. It was Easter Sunday, when Christ himself rose up, setting aside the chains of death. Surely this holy example was the one followed by the slave Busa of Bailey Plantation. Yet the three days of fighting that followed witnessed the death of 800 slaves, and another hundred were executed. Without their sacrifice, perhaps slavery would never have ended in Barbados. It was not just those 800 and more who suffered. Slavery went on for over 200 years on the island, since the time of the first British settlers. The bodies of West African slaves manured those sugar plantations that made the white owners so very rich. With the death of my father... I have now inherited some several plantations and governmental monies for the loss of slaves post-abolition, along with the family title which is itself the name of a particular plantation. I left Barbados when still a young man and thought I had escaped it all, yet it has found me out. Perhaps a man cannot escape his past, when that past has made him who he is in the present. He may as well try and escape his own bloodline and the blood in his own veins. I have dedicated myself, since leaving Barbados, to the study of iron, steel, production, mechanical process and construction. I have patented several methods to reduce the general reliance upon human manual labour. Why should men break their backs when metal beams, rollers and levers can replace them? After all, metal will endure far better than flesh and bone. It stands the test of strength and time far better. I dare say that the roof of iron and steel that I designed and erected over St Pancras Station will remain far beyond my own years of life. It is probably sinful to take pride in such a roof, yet it is the first time that a single span of such size has ever been achieved. It is 240 feet across and 102 feet high. New materials, machinery and methods of construction can achieve things that the bent backs of men cannot. Such machinery and methods will spare all men in the future, too, it is my hope. In this year of my retirement, they are to make me vice-president of the Iron and Steel Institute. In many ways, I would prefer that posterity remembered me by that title than the title of Third Baronet of Four Hills. Do not mistake me. I do not wish to deny who I am, where I have come from, or any of my forebearers. Yet I wish to relieve something of the burden of the baronetcy from those who might follow me. If possible, for a fair financial recompense, I will rid the family of all its plantations and hope to reduce the burden upon my son and his son, and so on. I would have them pursue occupations that do not relate to the plantations. Perhaps they will go on to serve the good of all people. And during my retirement, until my own death, Once having seen to the disposal of the properties in Barbados, I will turn my inquiry and investigation to the greatest questions that confront all humankind. I speak only of a consideration of the heavens themselves, for I have lately developed a fascination with the science of astronomy. This science is perhaps the greatest but least resolved of all the sciences. Its celestial phenomena hint and suggest at so very much, but reveal so very little. It is almost an act of human faith in and of itself. I have humbly visited both the observatory at Stonyhurst in Lancashire and at Falmouth in Cornwall. I now feel informed enough that I am able to engineer and accouter my own place of observation here beneath the pristine skies of Belper in Derbyshire. I am excited to record that I am already beginning to hypothesize, realize and discover some cosmic relationship between the magnetic storms upon the surface of our sun, those storms termed sunspots, and the weather conditions here upon our earth. Imagine if, by that research, we might genuinely have some small glimpse of a much larger and greater relationship. Imagine if it was a step towards truly perceiving the divine. This creative piece by A.J. Dalton, was inspired by the true life of Sir John Allain.
0: I had the opportunity to sit with Adam Dalton and ask him questions about his response to the life of Sir John Allain. Let's hear what he said. Hi Adam, thanks for writing for this project and for coming today and recording it for us.
3: No problem, it was a pleasure.
0: It's a very interesting piece, the one that you've created, where where we have a bit of tension about John Elaine reconciling with his past, trying to extricate new generations from the burden of it. Yet at the same time, there's still a bit of nostalgia for that other world, even though he doesn't want to participate on it, and he wants to create something new, something that almost eases that burden a little with the technology and trying to kind of move on from that, do you want to talk to us about that?
3: Yeah, I mean obviously dealing with a a man who represented a slave-owning family yeah. is going to have a lot of sensitivities around it mm-hmm. and it's going to be a powerful narrative, it's going to have those tensions as, as you describe them, it's going to have some, I think, moral contradictions Particularly, given that you know all the people of those time were religious people, mm-hmm. so how yep. did they square what they were doing with what they were doing yes. um, with their religion? Um, for me, Sir John was a fascinating character. he was also a man of science yes. at the same time as being a religious person, so mm-hmm. how does that Another square
0: contradiction, maybe. how
3: does that square? Why was he interested in science? what was it doing for mankind mm-hmm. um, especially as he was getting older he became fascinated with observations in the heavens and trying to explain what had gone on on earth and for me you know um, he was he was trying to work out what had gone on in his in his own life and what things had brought him to this place in many ways I mean the research made it quite clear that he'd fled Barbados. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a very young man, about 19, he tried working in the family business, which was import-export, let's Mm -hmm. say, but it involved the transportation of slaves. Mm -hmm. Um, And he gave up all of that, and it it was a very successful family business. Um, This family had, had helped establish Mount Gay Rum, Mm-hmm. which is still the oldest known brand of rum being sold in the world. That's right. They were extremely wealthy. Hmm. Um, and yet he gave up all of that. He he kind of left Barbados and only returned 50-odd years later
0: wow.
3: to kind of settle the estate and have done with it. Yeah,
0: um, close that chapter.
3: Yeah. Now, you know, there's a lot going on there. And all of this stuff would have been going on in the mind of any intelligent person with any sort of moral conscience. Yeah. Um Barbados didn't end slavery at the same time as the rest of the Caribbean. It was the last, one of the last places oh, wow. to um see the end of slavery. Um it had one of the biggest slave rebellions with the, the greatest suffering. Mm-hmm. Um
0: is that the one you mentioned in the piece? Yeah, yeah.
3: where Busa um, of Bailey Plantation, we don't have more more name than just Busa, mm-hmm. um, led the uprising. That uprising actually inspired a lot of the other islands to, to rise up. Interesting. And okay. they actually,
0: they, did, managed, they to, managed to yeah. break
3: free where Barbados did not. Now, the thing with Barbados is that the island was largely deserted when the Brits discovered it and all mm-hmm. the slaves were brought in. So, you know, there was a small um, Native American population, but they, they quickly kind of left the island when the Brits rolled up.
1: Mm.
3: And then all the the um, the West African slaves were imported and they were owned lock, stock and barrel like the land. Um, they were yeah. property. They were property, yes. Um, you know, if... If they didn't fulfill their role, their indentured role, then they would be homeless, they'd have no land, they would starve, you know. So it was literally a death sentence if you didn't fulfill your role as slave. So, you know, it was life and death. um, Now, you know, this man, a man of science, a man of conscience, a man who who clearly- A a man of options. Yeah, well, he had those options, yeah. yeah. He fled the place when young. Um, he was the one who finally got this kind of white man's burden out of the family. Um, I think it's it deals with, with massive philosophical moral themes. Yeah. Um, I'm
0: curious about that, whether that was the thing that attracted you to John Elaine, to, to write about him, because if we remember that grave had a lot of members of the family Alain, one of the biggest graves yeah, in, in the cemetery. I don't know
3: if you know the Alain School in London. It's, I don't. Yeah. Okay, so it's one of the, the famous historic kind of college schools, pseudo-private public public school yeah. in London, very good reputation. It, it is said that um, the Alaines founded that school. I see. They certainly also founded Alane School in Barbados. Mm-hmm. So there's a tradition of education and science that goes with this family. Um they um they did slightly more in Barbados to improve the lot of their, their slaves. I'm not I'm not picking them up here by any means. Yeah. But they introduced, we think, the first windmill to Barbados, mm-hmm. which would sp- to which would spare yeah. the slaves hauling buckets of water up and down hills and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um you know they were one of the first, and uh, the Alain School they established in Barbados was the first school to allow mixed education, and I, mm. by which I don't mean girls and boys, I mean yeah. white mm. and, and and black. Yeah. Um, so you know, uh, they were doing some things enough to to I I felt in the creative piece to signal that they were inc- uncomfortable yes. with um, with the kind of the punishing nature of, of Slavery, um, and certainly Sir John was the one who wanted to kind of move his family to an, an into a new era, yeah. a modern era, where
0: very engaged with technology yeah. development, discovery.
3: Yeah, um, and I think you know the wealth of the UK today as you know the fifth biggest economy in the world. Blah 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 blah. We're just a very small island. <laughs> a lot of our wealth today still comes from British Empire. Yes, we still own a lot of islands out there, British territories. Um, So for me, this isn't just some story from the past that's got nothing to do with us. For me, it's entirely relevant today.
0: This is actually quite contemporary because we are seeing some universities looking into their connection back to slavery. Glasgow being the first one to do this.
3: Yeah, and um, Liverpool University are doing something very similar. Uh, I think they're going to run a project much like yours, Sherry, perhaps. Oh,
0: to wow. <laughs> say hi, Liverpool. Let's, let's work together.
3: Um, Liverpool have a strategic partnership with the local slave history museum. Famously, parts of Liverpool are named after the powerful slave-owning families. A lot of streets are named after those families. Same in
0: Glasgow.
3: Yeah. yeah, there have been calls for... Um, the names of those families to be removed from street names. Now mm-hmm. there's been a lot of debate about that. I, mm-hmm. Do you actually want to erase the story and evidence of art, the slave owning past, or do you want that evidence to be there for future generations yeah. so that they can't deny what's yeah, try gone away on? away
0: from it. It's, it's, it's a tricky thing to to discuss, but I do believe that this is quite a contemporary story as well because. I think there's there's something universal about this man trying to do something better to better his family to to go somewhere else to do that and we have of course immigration is quite a hot topic at the moment
3: And I think we st- we can still learn from him because you know we have new forms of slavery in the modern day we yes. have you know, sex trafficking, we have yeah. child slavery, effectively, yeah. you know, if you, if you look at the families in India and, uh, sorry, not the families, the factories in India, mm-hmm. where, you know, children well, of 12 and 13 are not being educated because they're working in terrible conditions and so on. So we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, sh- we should be, we should still be learning from
0: this guy. Absolutely. I have a question about the grave. What drew you to that one, to that story?
3: I mean, what drew me to the whole cemetery? I mean, the cemetery... Aside
0: from me. <laughs> the,
3: the cemetery is is in a roman- romantic location overlooking the sea. There's a very high vantage point. It's almost got a sense of a haunted... Cemetery with tumble down tombstones. It's where they should be, you know, making horror films and stuff like that. <laughs> but there is something about the very vertical hierarchy of where the graves of particular people are placed yes. in that cemetery. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that the highest grave in the entire cemetery was Sir John Alanes, <laughs> third baronet of He Has the Best View Definitely. of the World, <laughs> even. Even, even now. Even, even now. Enough. Even in death. And there there is something lasting about privilege. If you go to the best schools, you'll, you know, with the best teachers, you'll get the best qualifications, you'll get the best jobs, you'll inherit the wealth of the empire. And even in death, you will still be celebrated as a great individual. Now, yeah that still goes on today and yeah. I'm like I wanted to expose that sort of narrative as mm-hmm. well um, you know uh,
0: it does there's a big contrast in the cemetery where we have some wooden crosses some of them withering away with time and, and no notice aside from the from the fact that there is a cross or sections of the cemetery that are grown over by saplings or rambles and yet there's a part of the cemetery that is still very orderly, very mowed down. And
3: yeah I mean the, the good Christians <laughs> are in the prime, prime yes, real estate. At the
0: top of the hill. At the
3: top of the hill. The non-conformists are, sl- are close but
0: a bit lower down a you bit know. Lower, yeah. And
3: then right at the bottom you've mm. kind of got the children's mm. graveyard.
0: Yeah. Mm. Um, Some of them are modern ones as well. Yeah, But
3: um, clearly they didn't get old enough to be important enough so they didn't get the best spots. It's terrible. Yeah,
0: there's something to be said and looked into about yeah. that hierarchy.
3: And for me, it's it's a kind of a it's more than a metaphor. It's an actual physical representation of how class in the UK, as allied to religious positioning in the UK. I mean, we've got the Queen at the top of the Church of England, yes. so you have kind of got social rank and religious placement, you Mm -hmm. know, um, all kind of not conspiring, but all working together, let's say, to kind of keep those who are born less privileged in a less privileged position, Mm -hmm. with less education for the rest of their lives, and then even into death.
0: Even into death.
3: And so, you know, the slave narratives that are are at risk of being buried, Mm -hmm. I felt should be, you know, shown the light of day. I think we should have... You know, put the yeah. attention upon, you know, the real, the kind of the slavery that went on. Yeah. Um,
0: Interestingly, as well, it's very likely that those slaves, even if they did have a grave, it wouldn't have anything signalling who they were. You were saying earlier that we didn't have the full name mm. of someone who led um, a rebellion. That's an interesting relationship. Who gets to be buried?
3: Absolutely. And I, and obviously, it's really hard to research yes. these people. You can't yeah. because there's no information collected about them. I I did feel slightly um, uncomfortable with the fact that to discuss um, black slaves, I had to work through this white, powerful male. Yes. I was really nervous when writing this piece that I didn't want to make him a white savior. Mm -hmm. I didn't want him to say, look, I have liberated slaves and blah, blah, blah. I, and it it, it was uh, it was a shame. But there, there are no actual records mm-hmm. of the slaves in any sort of depth. And, and I did try to research that. There is very, very little. The fact that we have Busa's name, and it's only his first name,
1: yeah.
3: and Bailey Plantation, we haven't got much, any more than that.
1: Um,
3: so it does kind of have to be accessed through those who are celebrated within society because there's far more information about them.
0: Yeah. It's something to, to think about as we go on with this project. We are accessing stories about people who were buried in the cemetery, but there are a lot of people who we don't have their names of. We don't have the the grave. The, we hear also that there are mass graves in the cemetery, um, which we'll we'll be looking into later in the in the season. But it's an interesting question to go about, and I invite our listeners to think about that. Who gets to be buried? Who gets to be recognized in their burial? And their information still available to us 200, 100 years later
3: mm-hmm. to,
0: to go back, to rethink, to reconstruct.
3: Yeah, so Sir John Alleyne, because he's got a title, mm-hmm. as in a, a lordship or whatever, um, a baronetcy rather, which is more mm-hmm. than a lord, I think. Yes. Um, barons are very high up. Um, he is, of course, in the um, official uh, record of all the... Um, nobility of the UK. Um, So his family line is all really well documented. We've got his middle names. Mm -hmm. We've got all his children. We've got these big, uh, elaborate family trees. Um, The wealth that he was generating for the British Empire, of course, made him powerful. And Mm -hmm. indeed, his family took on were awarded this noble title because they made so much damn money for the for the queen, and for the empire, um, and but all that wealth, of course, is built on slavery. So, in, you know, the titles and the the celebration and the rewards should all go to them. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: it's interesting. You also mentioned how they were compensated. Yeah, yeah. Is, it's an interesting thing for me to think about that it was the owner that was compensated not not the actual person who suffered and who lost family choice freedom
3: yeah the white slave owners were the ones who got who got all the monies from the crown when when the slaves were finally liberated now think about slaves being liberated where what are they gonna, where are they going to go and set up a plantation of yeah. their own and start making money yeah. they're not they haven't They haven't got the means to do that. Mm -hmm. So what happened to them? Well, they carried on working on the plantations, didn't they? So although officially slavery ended, in reality, it really didn't because the white slave owners were given even more money and what they did was allow... Small parcels of land to the slaves, mm-hmm. but effectively they were still, they were still working there. those plantations. Yeah. And the same happened in the deep south in, in uh, America. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, although slavery ended, I think it was around 1890 mm-hmm. in America, effectively the black people had nowhere to go. They stayed mm-hmm. on the, on the um, farms for, on the plantations for another 20, 30 years, and it was only then that they realized what was going on. Jim Crow laws began to come in, segregation, and they're like, okay, let's forget this. And then the mass migration began to move, mm-hmm. uh, began to happen, and we had the Great Migration of black people, f- black people from the south of uh, America, mm. in towards New York, and over ten years, there were about six million wow. uh, uh, black Americans migrating to the north, where there was more freedom. Um, in Barbados I think the freedom the migration was actually a lot of the the white slave owners slowly and the families Mm. began to leave because you know if they couldn't you know
0: yeah get the labor for free
3: yeah that's (laughs) it then actually the game was up boys and girls
0: yeah now moving on to something else and it's a question I'm going to ask everyone to answer okay what would your gravestone say
3: well, I always I I always laugh when because um, uh, Spike Milligan, the famous comedian, on his grave, mm-hmm. he had um, engraved, "I told you I was ill."
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so <laughs> I, I might put something like that, but plagiarism in death, no, it's not very mm. cool. I don't want to go out that way. You
0: might be able to get away with it. Yeah, I mean, you're gone. <laughs>
3: yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I might write something like, I did my best. Mm. You know, no piece of writing is perfect. That's true. Um, I've tackled, I think, some quite difficult issues in, in this creative piece. Um, but honestly, I did my best.
0: You did your best. Thank you, Adam.
3: You're welcome. <laughs>
1: Some darkness cannot
0: destroy. Please, we, can. we want to make an amendment. Adam mentioned that the abolition of slavery in the United States took place around 1890s. In actuality, the Emancipation Proclamation issued by Abraham Lincoln, he stated January 1st, 1863. The 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution abolished slavery in December 1865. We heard from Adam about the story of Sir John Gay Newton and Lane, a story about the British Empire, a story about someone who has a significant grave in the Falmouth Cemetery. We asked the question of who gets a grave and where are all those slaves who participated forcefully for centuries in the plantations where are they buried? We don't have this answer but we want you to think about it to think about what it means to be buried about who gets a grave in this project we're looking at those who get the grave as a springboard to ask these questions to get closer little bits of truth and to start on an exercise of reconstruction, retelling, and speculation. Thank you for listening to the first episode of our new podcast. Thank you, Adam, for your insightful research, your creative response, and for taking the time to chat with us about your experience with Sir John Lane. Please rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. Tell a friend about us. Follow us on Twitter at WeAreOnTheHill or visit our website, WeAreOnTheHill.com. On the Hill is written, recorded, and produced in Falmouth by me with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about Sir John Elaine by Adam Dalton. Research about the status of Falmouth Cemetery in historic England and as a high Victorian garden cemetery by Carol Grant. Research about the Falmouth Cemetery and the town's history, by me. Fragments from Sir Robert Rolison's 1854 report, read by Alex Horne. Fragments from the police 1903 annual report, read by Alex Horne. The version of Amazing Grace You Heard is by Kevin MacLeod. Creative piece by Aaron Dalton. This episode was edited by me. This project was initially inspired by Pertie Coves, 2017, until the daybreak. We would like to thank Tony Casey, whose initial research into the Falmouth Cemetery has illuminated many of the stories we will look at this season. We also want to thank the Falmouth History Archive at the POLY for guiding us and advising us as we peruse the resources they have there about the Falmouth Cemetery, invaluable resources that has strengthened their research across this season. The Falmouth History Archives are open on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. They are run by amazing volunteers, and a lot of interesting history is guarded there. You can get in touch with them via email, history at the poly.org. We also want to thank the Falmouth Town Council for giving us access to the original deeds of the cemetery and also to the original burial records. You can browse the burial records online at this address, uk forward slash search hyphen burial hyphen records our theme song is precious things by we are Muffy. thanks to them for letting us use it you can find details about our research about our song about our writers and our project on our website we if you want to help us please rate review and subscribe to us on apple Podcasts or whatever else you listen to your podcasts and tell a friend tell them about this podcast about our stories about the Falmouth Cemetery. Follow us on Twitter at WeAreOnTheHill and say hi, or visit our website, WeAreOnTheHill.com. Join us again in a couple of weeks for the next episode. And in the meantime, reach out to us on Twitter. We would love to hear about you, your stories, your experience in Falmouth, and what you thought about our first episode. I am Xerezada Garcia-Rangel, and this is On The Hill. Until next time.
1: Sweet.